We're going to get into the last chapter of the book of Acts today, the Pentecostal handbook. It just so happens that the very last chapter of the book that we've been studying all year coincides with the last day of class. Isn't that exciting? So we're going to learn about Paul uh, on the island of Malta, right? He was shipwrecked in chapter 27. He had great faith in, in God to deliver him. Now we're going to see um, where they land on the island of Malta following a shipwreck. And then Paul finally meets his, his destination in Rome. So we're really excited uh, to hear from the man of God. Um, he's getting ready. He's in the batter's box. All right. Let's just give it up for our pastor and visionary leader. Joe Irostek. Yeah, let's get that out of the way for him. Thank you, Judith. You did a wonderful job. Uh, make sure we make time afterwards so I can give you guys some pointers and some um, encouragement. All right, let's open up to Acts chapter 28. It's good that uh, we have gone through this. I don't know how much of an accomplishment it feels for you, but for me as a speaker, it feels quite amazing to be able to have spent the entire year going through the book of Acts, especially as a Pentecostal. We have learned so many wonderful things, and I hope that you never forget them, or uh, at least the foundations of them, or where to go back and find those nuggets. The wonderful thing about the church is that our website hosts all of the podcasts and different things that you can go back to and research. So if you're ever doing something on a certain chapter, you can actually go right back to the chapter, and you can find what we had to say about it, look at the notes and the resources. And the last chapter today, as uh, Pastor Jared was saying, we're going to go over uh, Paul's journey to Rome, and his uh, events that happened there, and then I'm going to culminate the whole book and put some uh, thoughts together. I want to see if you guys can catch it, so let me just come to you right now. Is there anything similar about the end of Acts that has to do with the beginning of Acts, similarities between the end of Acts and the beginning of Acts? Let's keep that as a thought as we go through here into Acts chapter 28. Verse 1, Luke continues on with Paul's journey here to Rome. He says, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. So if you're remembering, they are on a ship heading to Rome. There was a shipwreck. God had told Paul that it was going to happen. They did not listen to Paul. And so it ended up happening just as he had said. But thankfully, everybody was spared. Verse 2, the islanders showed up as uh, showed us rather unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Notice the historical details. Luke is a great historian, inviting us into the story to take part of this journey. Verse 3, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, and the goddess just, uh, rather he escaped from the sea, but the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. So see that uh, these prisoners were on the boat heading towards Rome. It's shipwrecks. They know that. They're unusually kind. They prepare a fire. They're going to have a meal for them. Paul's helping out, and as he drops his pile of wood into the fire, a snake comes out and bites him, which is a poisonous viper, and these people are thinking this is like a karmic thing. This is, you've done bad, now bad is happening to you. They attribute it to their false goddess, Justice, and so they are just now expecting Paul to die. But but in verse 5, Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. 
Right here you see the power of God over sickness, over what would happen naturally. God gives him supernatural power. What do I see here as a little type and a shadow to the Garden of Eden? Instead of the snake and the serpent bringing us death, we should have squished his head and brought him death and lived forever in God's paradise. Think about that. It was our garden. We had authority there, and he didn't belong there. We could have driven him out. But now in the New Testament, we are now born again with the power of God brought, brought back into the restored covenant, now have power over serps and, serpents and scorpions. That's said in Luke purposely. I didn't have the Luke reference here. Find that for me, serpents and scorpions, please. So Luke also references Jesus' words that we'll have authority over serpents and scorpions. And then in Mark, Jesus said that if you drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt you, and that you can even handle snakes and it won't hurt you. Now, this is not to go into what some wrongly have done in Pentecostalism, is to go into the Appalachian Mountains, drink cyanide, and handle snakes. It's not to test the Lord in that way, but it's saying you will have supernatural power. So that is confirmed one once again, in the book of Acts, things that Jesus said are confirmed in Acts, even though they are not purposefully trying to collude with each other. John Mark is the author of Mark. And though it's probably written around this time, Luke may not be that familiar with it or to the point where he's trying to say this is what Mark said. He is just naturally flowing history here, but that history is coming in line with the scriptures. Where is that scripture found in Luke? Luke 10, 19, let's go there quickly so that you can see it. This is Luke, the author of Acts. Listen to what he says that Jesus said. It's not found in any other gospel. It says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Here we see that deadly creatures are associated with evil. Not that they're necessarily evil. They're just associated with evil, and the application is you will overcome evil. Then we see in Mark chapter 16, like I said, we know that Luke uh, was a historian and he did research before he wrote his gospel, but uh, he doesn't make a direct reference to this. And we don't know if he knew of this part of the ending of, of the gospel of Mark, but yet it coincides once again with serpents and, and not being able to hurt us. Here in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, And these signs, uh, 16 rather, verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll drive out demons, speak in new tongues, they'll pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And so does it uh, match exactly to trampling on a snake or picking up a snake? No. But that was never the point of Jesus and Luke or in Mark. He's not saying it's literally going to be done this way. What he's just trying to say is deadly things will not hurt you. Evil things against you will not harm you. Excuse me. Does everybody get that? And here we see Paul living that out. Verse 6. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. So look at how quick they changed their mind. They went from thinking that he was an evil man, a murderer, which he wasn't, to now thinking he was a god. You see how fickle people are? If you live for, their, if you live for people's praise, you'll die by their critiques. Come on. Y'all like that? That's good. That's good. Y'all, mm. Come on. You see, if you live by people's praises, you'll die by their critiques. You can't go on either. 
have trusted people in your life that you really listen to and grow and sharpen each other's iron with, but don't live by outsiders' opinions of you. There are times where I, I look at a sermon and I watch how it fares on social media, and it can almost just go unnoticed, you know, just only a few hundred views, and that's even with me paying for it to be put out in advertising, you know, for it to be put out on Facebook, and only a few people seem to look at it. And those can sometimes be the sermons that the most amount of people will actually tell me in the church powerfully affected them, impacted them. So I can't go on the outside opinion of what people think about what I'm doing. And then there's other times where even here in the church where I'll preach a message and nobody will hardly say anything about it, but it won't be until months later that somebody will say, that message was a place where I got saved and gave my heart to Jesus. And I was like, man, I never even knew that. So I'm not living by their praise so I don't die by their critiques because people have opinions and they're just like armpits. Most of the time they have two and it what? It stinks. And so you don't live by people's opinions. You live by the word of God and the close people around you. Like, like I said, it doesn't mean you just reject everybody. Listen to your leaders. Listen to your close friends, and they can also offer good um, help. But we're not looking, looking to the outsiders. And here, Paul, he wasn't phased when they thought he was a murderer. Even if he would have died, he, known he, he knew he was just before God. But he didn't. And then when they thought he was a God, that wasn't true as well. But it did show the miraculous power of God. And when they saw that, they attributed it to paganism. Now, when we show the miraculous power of God, they attribute it to something unknown in science. Uh, one of the books that I want to get now that Dr. Brown had on his podcast was by Randy Clark, and it's about miracles, and he's being very honest with it. And he, he said that the life of praying for people for miracles is high victories and low defeats. And he was very honest with it, and that's what I've seen as well, praying for people with miracles. You'll see great victories, things that just are amazing, but then you'll suffer just agonizing defeats when you prayed for that sick child and they still ended up passing. Or they, you know, they died an early death or something and they suffered. And it's just, it's painful. But that doesn't mean we change our opinion of God. We trust him. And then we don't pray just general prayers like, oh, God, if it's your will. No, we're going to keep commanding the will of God and let him sort it out in heaven. But the idea is that, that I was getting from that is that even when he sees miracles and we're in the scientific age so we can bring uh, the evidence to doctors and we can compare it with their previous uh, diagnosis, people even then will not believe when their heart is hard. They'll attribute it to something unknown to science. So in one time there was a debate with an atheist, Christopher Hitchens, he's now died of cancer, and our uh, opponent, uh, Douglas Wilson, was railing him upon the evidences of the resurrection until he had no mer nowhere to run. He had no more answers, he had nothing else to say, and he finally just basically threw up his hands and said, well, even if Jesus raised from the dead, it doesn't prove he's God, it could have just been something unexplained in medical science. Do you see how the atheist or the unbeliever will continue to rebut even the miracle itself? Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the Jewish people still didn't believe, but now they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They wanted to kill Lazarus now, too. We're going to kill you again. We don't like what you're saying. We can't explain what happened, but we don't like what you're saying. And so you can't think that a miracle is an end-all and, and fast uh, track somebody to salvation. That's not how it is. Otherwise, Judas never would have betrayed Jesus. He not only saw miracles, but he was a part of the miracle working power. Probably one of those that Jesus referred to, many will come to me on that day and say, we've done all of these things in your name. Judas would, would be one of those. But when a miracle does happen to people who are seeking 
it can be a sign for them of the wonderful things of God and open up their heart. And that's what we're going to see here on the island of Malta is after this miracle happens, they think he's a God. He's going to change their uh, belief systems by preaching the word of God, say, no, I'm not a God. I serve God and so forth. And then they're going to get saved as we're going to see. But let me just show you the map here so you can see where we're at in the journey. Paul started off in Jerusalem, got arrested, and then he went to uh, Caesarea, and then he... Um, went to court and said he was going to appeal to Caesar, and there he went down the shorelines here of those different places, went and visited uh, Crete, and there between Crete and Malta, because the people didn't listen, they shipwrecked and ended up on Malta, and that's where he is right now. Now, let's see the testimony of what happens after these people see this miracle. Verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He, he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. So then Paul continues on with favor with the people so that he even gets to pray for this chief official. Now notice we name the chief official because this is a historical book. This is not mythology. And he gets healed. Verse 9, when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. So it went from this uh, thing where Paul almost dies to him now being known as a miracle worker. God starts working with him, and he starts praying for the sick. And many people are healed on that island, and they begin to come to Jesus. And so that's a powerful testimony of what miracles can do. So should we uh, pray for miracles today? Absolutely. And one of the most powerful miracles I saw was in a moment like this, an unexpected moment like Paul with the snake. We were playing volleyball, and I actually had spiked the ball, and it um, fractured a man's wrist who was already injured, and he had kind of just... Uh, been babying it and just took it out of his cast, I guess, or something, or, you know, the brace to come out and play. And here it was re-injured and he was really in pain, kind of, you know, like holding it going, ah. And I said, man, can I pray for you? And as I began to pray for him, he actually held out his arm and he said, look, the swelling is going down and the pain is going away. I feel better than when I did before, but when I came out here. And so that was just a, a moment to see God do that. And I've heard stories like that. So, so we, sh we should be ready in season and out of season. And we shouldn't be discouraged when we don't see people be healed. Because even though Paul here sees this island getting the power of God, there were times Paul left people sick on his journey. Uh, there, was, there was even uh, some idea that he might have dealt with sickness. Now, do we ever accept sickness, though, as God's best? No, we pray against it. We stand against it. We say that it's on the cross that Jesus bore our sicknesses. Je and this is what I say to people who doubt that. I say, did Jesus take your sins on the cross? Yes. Well, the same passage Isaiah and reiterated in Peter says where he took our sins, he took our sicknesses. And now do you believe he took your sorrows? Well, I'm not sure about that. God must love it when I'm depressed because then I feel closer to him. No, God doesn't use depression to bring you closer to him. And, and he does love it when we bring our tears to him, yes, but he doesn't use depression. And so we looked at those same scriptures in Isaiah 53. It says, he bore our griefs and our sorrows. Amen? Can I hear an amen? You all believe that, right? So until we get to heaven... Will we have battles with sin, sickness, and sorrow? Absolutely. But is it the, the plan of God for us to have any of those things in our lives? No, even to this day, sister, like you were saying in your, your story, I still, during times of prayer for healing, take off my glasses and I say, God, I know you can give me 20-20 vision. Why would I ever stop believing for that? What harm does it do to believe God is my healer even for such things that I have glasses for now? 
Why, why stop believing? I want to believe one day that the power of God will flow through this room and every sickness will be healed, even things like glasses, because people were, were believing. Why couldn't God do such a thing? We've now figured out there's ways to do it through LASIK and all these other things. God is more powerful than all of that. Amen? But what we see here is that God used Paul to be a missionary to bring the gospel to these people even while he was on a journey to Rome. And we see then the the scripture that he said in Romans that all things work together for God's glory. Because if God can use Joseph in a pit, in Potiphar's house as a slave and in prison and before Pharaoh, God can use Paul on a journey to Rome and on a slave ship, on a prisoner ship. Amen? So God can use you in a third period classroom and God can use you during finals and God can use you at Starbucks while you're studying. God can use all situations for his glory. You just have to be open and ready for that. And we trust the Lord with the results. And I just think about my my aunt, because the Bible says we're all appointed a time to die. She's dying of bone cancer in the hospice. She says, I'm healed, I'm healed. She's praying for people even as she's dying for them to be healed and receive miracles. And I believe, as I've told the story before, she went from saying, I am healed, and the doctor saying, no, you're still sick. And she said, I'm healed, and the doctor saying, no, she's still sick. And then she closes her last, she closes her eyes, breathes her last breath. She says, I am healed, standing face to face with Jesus and says, and he says, yes, you are. Yes, you are. So the reality is Christ. Amen. He is our reality. That just gives me just the Holy Ghost goosebumps because I just think about just the last moment from her passing over. And you know, you're still conscious from one moment to the next. And here you are now standing in the Lord with that thought in your mind. I am healed. I am the beloved of the Lord. And now you're standing face to face with him. And what you once were believing for in faith uh, is now a reality. I believe that. Verse 11, after three months, we put out to sail, uh, put out to sea in a ship. So he had been there for three months, and that had been wintered in that island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Once again, Castor and Pollux. Does everybody see the detail here of the history of Acts? He actually says, this is the ship, this is where it was from, and these are the two gods that were on it. Verse 12, we put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we we reached Petuliae. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. And so what we see here is that Paul, as we told before and as we'll see here at the end, is that Paul was not a prisoner without rights, because he had appealed to Caesar when he was innocent. So the Jewish, had, Jewish people couldn't uh, bring the death penalty upon them, uh, upon Paul, because he said he was a Roman citizen. And then the Romans came and rescued him from their hands when he was arrested in, in Jerusalem. And now he's in Roman custody, and the Jews keep trying to put charges on him, and the Romans find no problem with him. And then Paul gets a word from the Lord to appeal to, to Caesar so that he can travel to Rome basically on the, uh, the boat paid for by Rome. So he uses their ships to get there. And we see that he has more rights than your average slave or your average prisoner. And we'll see at the end of the book, he's on what they would call house arrest. He can come and go. It's not until the time of Nero, around 60 AD, that Christians now get persecuted heavily by Rome. Uh, The book of Acts pretty much tells the persecution based in Judaism. The Jewish people were the ones hating on Christians the most. And that was up until right around the 50s. And then right after that, Nero sees the growth of the Christian empire. There's a fire in Rome. 
from what we can tell from history, he blames that fire that brought devastation and economic loss to his empire on Christians superstitiously or, or saying that they're sabotaging us, kind of like how Germany did with the Jews. And then from there, they turn against the Christians and don't stop until Christians overtake the Roman government in the mid-300s. So we brought Rome down to its knees, not militarily, but by being lambs led unto slaughter, preaching the gospel unto death. We don't die, we multiply, amen? And Paul was a part of that first batch of persecution led by Nero, and you can read more about that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. So he's allowed to spend time with these brothers and sisters there for a week, and then he arrives in Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming. They traveled as far as the Forum of Appius, and I have a link there. You can learn about it, and the Three Taverns. Sounds like a fun place to go uh, to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. I shouldn't say that. For Lord, forgive me. <laughs> I shouldn't say that in Bible college. You guys might get me in trouble. Okay, and at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So do you guys see that there? He's under a house arrest type environment. He is not getting beaten. Let's not over-dramatize this. He is given rights as a Roman soldier, and that's why he has dual names. Paul and Saul are not transformative names like uh, Simon is to Peter. Paul and Saul, as we've learned before, are his two different nationalities that he's a citizen of. He's a Jewish person, so he takes on the name of his Jewish identity, Saul, uh, but he's also a Roman citizen, and so he can have the name Paul, and that name Paul us, as we know in Latin, was what he would use in his Roman context. And primarily, he's reaching the Gentiles. We see him as Paul. When he's writing his letters, he's using the name Paul, and that's why he had it. It was never a transformative name. So uh, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the Jewish leaders, the local Jewish leaders there. When they assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the custom of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. It's like, thanks, Paul, for summarizing. You see how he just summarizes everything here? I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now, what is the hope of Israel? Somebody shout it out. What was the hope of Israel? Without the professor, what is it? The Messiah. That's right. It's okay to look on the notes. Yes. The hope of Israel is the Messiah. Paul had mentioned this before in Acts 26 when he was before the courts there. This is what he believes he's arrested for. So did Jesus get rightfully crucified by the Jews under the Roman rule for blasphemy? Yes or no? No. Jesus was not blaspheming. Is it wrong for you to say you are a human? No, because you are a human. Was it blasphemy for Jesus to make himself equal to God? No, because he is God. But they wrongly misunderstood him, and they then called that blasphemy. Is Paul wrong to say Jesus is the God-man, the Messiah? No, is that going against the customs of Israel? No, did, did Paul or Jesus ever violate any of the 613 laws? No, sometimes people think that Jesus violated the laws. No, Jesus violated Jewish traditions that were put on top of the law, but Jesus never violated the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. 
I heard one preacher saying, and I won't name his name, it was one of the a few that Jared just named, so you can do any, meeny, miny, mo, catch a false teacher by a toe. No, I'm kidding. They're not false teachers, but they have things wrong at times. But this one preacher, he was preaching, and he was like, I can tell you right now that you would do more for your loved one and not care about the law than you would think about the law if your loved one was hurting. So he says, I'm going to show you an example of how we don't care about the law. All we do is care about love, and God's the same way. If your relative or somebody you love, a child, fell from a, a, a 20 foot high monkey bars and broke their arm, what would you do? You would get them in your car and then you would drive fast. Let me ask you something. Would you pay attention to the sign that says speed limit? No, you would break the law out of love. Well, let me tell you, Jesus loved you so much, he broke the law for you. That's how he preaches million views on Facebook. People actually think that is what the Bible teaches. God have mercy. But he's hype, and it makes sense to the hearer who doesn't know the Scripture. Oh, Jesus broke laws. Jesus showed us how much he loved us. Oh, I would break the speed limit law. No, first of all, the speed limit law is not applicable to emergencies. That's why emergency vehicles can break them. The law of God is set in eternity and is applied to all humans. God in the flesh was a human and would never break the law under any circumstance. But what we see is that he did actually the opposite. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law. He brought the law to its fullness. And by being the perfect fulfillment of the law, not breaking any of the law, he could die on the cross for our sins. Does everybody see the difference? Another foolish thing that people bring up is that uh, the New Testament church had the spirit and not the book. Bill Johnson is now making this popular, so I do mention the name so that you guys will be warned about it, is that the idea is they had the, we have the book and they had the spirit. So what's more important? We need to go back to what they had, the spirit. But that is total nonsense. When the baptism of the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, what did Peter stand up and preach? His own opinions or the book? And what part of the book? The Old Testament, the prophet Joel. How did these men know how to preach the Old Testament in the New Covenant setting? Because the Old Testament brought forth the promises of the New Covenant. The, new, the Old Covenant was not opposed to the New Covenant. The mindset of those who stuck in that, yes, Hagar, as Galatians says when Paul talks about it, but the old covenant was the tutor to lead us to the new covenant and is the springboard for the new covenant. So what was the Bible for the New Testament Christian before the New Testament was written? What was the New Testament Christian's Bible? The Old Testament, and you'll see that in just a moment. So he calls the people to him and says, hey, man, I haven't hurt nobody. I'm staying out of trouble. I'm innocent. Verse 21, they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything about you. But we want to hear about your, what your views are, for we know that the people here, and the people are, excuse me, we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. So Christianity was looked at as a sect among the Jewish people, like a cult. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, these Jewish leaders, and came in large numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. Talk about a long preacher, a long sermon. Watch this. Explaining about the what? The kingdom of God. Explaining about the kingdom of God from the Gospels, from the New Testament letters that he wrote, from the book of Revelation, from all of these other books from pastors? No, where did he explain about the kingdom of God from? Where did he go directly to? The law of Moses and from the prophets. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus. 
So here would be an assignment for all of you to see how much you got out of the book of Acts. Could you use the law of Moses and the prophets to preach Jesus? Could you make sense of the New Testament without using it? Could you make sense of it? Could you defend it? Could you bring explanation to it without you using it? Because that's how these brothers and sisters did it. They were so um, honored, they, 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 they were so honorable towards the law and the prophets that they understood exactly what it was, and so they used that as their way of explaining the covenant to them. All the promises of the new covenant, all the promises of God walking among men and coming down and being with them. Daniel, one of the prophets, Daniel chapter 7, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. That is beautiful. Do you know that Revelation quotes more from Daniel than any other book? It's just amazing. You can find so much in the Old Testament. The Psalter, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Who used that scripture to prove the divinity of the Messiah? Jesus so did the New Testament Pentecostals have a book? Yes or no? Yes, it's called the Old Covenant. But did they also have the Spirit? Absolutely. So we should have both, Spirit and truth. Isn't that what the Bible says? We should have Spirit and truth. They are not against each other. The Old Testament is not against the New Testament. Don't believe that folly. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. The Old Testament is the beginning stages, the, 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 the tutor, as the Bible says, of the new covenant. And another way to say it is like this. The old covenant is the new covenant concealed, and the new covenant is the old covenant revealed. Amen? So, yes, the law has been fulfilled, and now we are under the law of Christ. So the law of Moses has been fulfilled, and we're under the law of Christ, which I hope that everybody's ready to come this Sunday because when I talk about the, the union of Christ and his church, I'm going to talk about it in retrospect to all the old covenant sexuality laws. So I'm going to talk about why homosexuality was a sin in the Mosaic law, why bestiality was a sin, why a pedophilia was a sin, why it was laid out in the law, and how it applies to Christ and his church. It's going to be an amazing sermon. It's going to be very informative. And I'll show you that the moral code of the Old Testament carries into the New Testament. Out of those 613 commands, there's probably about 20 to 30 that summarize the moral code of God. And that transcends both covenants and comes into the new covenant. That's why Jesus starts off by saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. He doesn't say, now we're going to start murdering. He says, now I'm going to take it to another level. Thou shalt not be angry with your brother. Right? Do you guys get that? You've heard not to commit adultery, and I'm going to take it another level further. So Jesus not only takes about the 20 or 30 commands that do with morality and brings them into the new covenant, but he then takes them to a further extent. He brings them to their fullness of why we were taught not to murder because we shouldn't even have hate in our heart. Why we were taught to obey our parents because God wants us to have a long life and be a part of his kingdom. Why we should not commit adultery because we should guard our hearts and have highs only for our wife or spouse. So I'll show you that the moral code of the Old Testament is the same exact moral code of the New Testament. It's just the Old Testament laws and the formalities that have to do with the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice. That has all now been fulfilled and brought over to Christ in the new covenant. But the moral law remains the same, and especially the moral law of sexuality. And I'll even talk a little bit about polygamy and how God even said he allowed it for a time, but it was never his best, and he even taught against it. And that was one of the warnings he gave the people and said, do not have a king, stay with a prophet, because if you have a king, what's he going to do, Jared? He's going to oppress you by doing what? Putting the professor on spot. Sorry, I thought you would know, sir. He's going to take your daughters as his wives. 
And that's exactly what uh, Solomon ended up doing. David had a few wives, but Solomon had hundreds of wives, and he did that as a form of perversion. And that took over his heart and actually led him to idolatry. And we're not sure if we'll see Solomon even when we get to heaven because of what perversion led him towards. And if you read in chapter 1 of Romans, uh, it's always idolatry and perversion, idolatry and perversion. That's why they're connected together like we see today in in Ireland when they throw off uh, the commands of God, think the commands of God are shackles. They go into a sexual promiscuous behavior. Sexual immorality and paganism or anti-Godism is always hand in hand. Does everybody get that? Just think about American history. We come out of the most time we were Christian in the 1950s, and we go into the 60s, the sex drug revolution, and that turned us against God. It was the sex and drugs revolution that turned us us against the God of of the Bible. If you read and study about Jimi Hendrix and and the musicians of those days, Janis Joplin, uh, the Beatles, all the people that were popular into the 60s, they, they start off all with this idea, we're coming out of what our parents raised us in. And then when you look at the end times, it says they are disobedient to their parents. And so even with Ireland, these these people now are making decisions that their parents did not want. Their parents wanted it a different way. And so that's what happened in America. In the 60s, we turned away from the God of our fathers. And now from there, you've been seeing the decline. And then that's when they took the Bible out of school. And that's when they had to put metal detectors into school. That's when abortion became legal. Are you guys tracking with me? You guys get that? Okay. But see, paganism and sexual immorality go together. How do I know that? Go back to the Bible. What happened when Moses went up? What did Aaron do with the people down there at the ground? They made a false god, and then what did they do? They worshiped, but how did they worship it? They danced naked and had orgies around it. You see, that's the, that's the link, and that's why Romans says they thought it not worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, and then they gave themselves over to these lusts and to these perversions and to all these different things. Now, every now and then, the perverted people will try to say, well, we're not like them, the pagans. We have godly mindsets. So the gay bishops and so forth, they'll say, uh, well, I'm not like the pagans of Moses' day. I'm not like the pagans of this. We do believe in Jesus, but we believe in expression of sexuality is blessed by God in same-sex union. But this is what we say. Though you may be claiming to serve our God, you are still a pagan because your Jesus is a myth. He's not the true Jesus of the Bible. So those, literally, get this with me. You may, let's just say right now you meet a United Methodist uh, lesbian pastor as the one I used to rent the building from. She will say to you, Romans 1 does not apply to me. The, the connection between paganism and sexual immorality do not apply to me. Why? She'll say, I worship your God, so my sexuality is not perverted. It's not a result of me worshiping another God. But what do we say to her? Who is your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, or is he another Jesus? You know, the Bible speaks about another Jesus, a false representation, another kind of Jesus. Do you all get that? This is where it gets quiet in Bible college. You're all saying, yeah, but I hope you get it. Okay, so if I worship, okay, let me ask you this. Is is Mormonism paganism, or is it Christianity? What makes it pagan? It's another God. But they say it's Jesus, right? They say it's Jesus, but what is your Jesus like? Who is your Jesus like? What is the description of your Jesus? What code of living does your Jesus live by? Let's say you meet somebody, and you're talking about your church, and you go, yeah, I go to this church. That's, and oh, they go, what's your pastor? And, and you go, Pastor Joe. And they go, oh, yeah, I know Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe, uh, he likes to, to rob and steal. He has, he has sex with members from his church. 
Now, let's just say they started making a description of Joe that almost matched me identically. They say, yeah, he has glasses, he has dark hair. You're like, yeah, but that's not the way he is. What is going to be a differentiation mark between me and that person? The, the differentiation mark is going to be my characteristics. It's not that there's a guy with brown hair. It's not just there's a guy with glasses or he's funny sometimes. It's no, no, no. The pastor Joe I know is a holy person, lives with his wife and kids. He's not this, right? So they may say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross, and it's this Jesus that comes from the triune God. This, but it is your Jesus a judge of morality and behavior in this way? Because if your Jesus approves of sin, your Jesus is not the real Jesus of the Bible. Does everybody get that? So we have paganism even truly today in another form of another Jesus. And, and let's go back to that idea, and I can show it to you. When you go back to the paganism of the Israelites and the golden calf, a little bit more obvious that it's not Jehovah. But what is the issue here? Who do they call the golden calf, Professor Jared? Who do they call the golden calf? They call him God, the one who delivered them out of Israel. Do you get that? They called the calf the God who delivered them out of Israel. So to their own credit, to their own credit, are we worshiping a false God down here? No. In their mind, what's Aaron going to say? I'm, come on, guys. you got to think they're, they're, they're smart. Stop thinking everybody in the Old Testament or Bible stories are dumb and they don't have excuses. Think, what are they going to say? We're worshiping Yahweh. We're, what about the one who offered their fire but it wasn't approved? We're worshiping Yahweh. Do you understand? This is a false worship, though. We're worshiping God in unprescribed, illegal way. And a false Jesus is an illegal form of worship. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the Jesus that saves. And that's why Paul said there, there are many Jesuses. There are many gods in this world in that sense. But there's only one real Jesus. There's only one true God, the Father. Okay, And so I want you guys to be confident that there, there can be many false Christs. There can be many people who claim to worship Christ. But the Christ of the Bible is tied to his character. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Encourage me. Thank you. The law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced, verse 24, but what he, by what he said, but others would not believe. See, this is the book of Arminianism, not Calvinism. We are not predestined by God to make certain choices. We are predestined by God knowing, by him knowing the choices we will make. So their choice, it was up to them. Some believed, some didn't. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. Here's Paul's final statement, and as the book of Acts is about ready to conclude. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet. See, what book is he using to preach? Isaiah, the law of Moses and the prophets. The Tanakh and the writings, in other words, or rather the Torah and the writings. The Torah is the first five books and the writings would be everything else. This is what Isaiah the prophet said. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. Now he goes into the Psalter. That's Psalm uh, 119.70, rather. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And so here you see Paul had no problem inter interweaving scriptures. It's not out of context, or what we call eisegesis, bad hermeneutics, which is a study of the Word of God, when you mix verses together as long as they stay on subject. So you can do that. That's why he mixed in there the psalm with Isaiah 6, uh, chapter 6, 9, and 10. 
Now, as we've studied before, there are certain verses in the newer translations that are not included because they don't believe they are from the best manuscripts that we have. But I conclude with the ecclesiastical approach, which is the manuscripts that the church has used over the years and are the majority. And so verse 29 in your NIV, everybody look at verse 29 in your NIV. Do you have an NIV, Ashley? What version do you have? The message, okay. Uh, what do you have in front of you, uh, TJ? Okay, read verse 29. See, you can't. Now you understand why. Everybody get it? He'll have a footnote there. We accept, we accept the ecclesiastical approach to the manuscripts. Verse 29 says, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Look at the last verse. And let's go to your homework assignment or the class assignment, I should say. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. How does the book of Acts end in comparison to how the book of Acts began? Proclaiming the gospel is so very close, sir, but I want to be exact. You're on the right track. No, boldness is close. Boldness will be in there as well. Not gospel-based. The word gospel is not the word I'm looking for, nor is it found anywhere in what I just read. The authority of Jesus, the gospel, the boldness, all of that is found in Acts chapter 1 and 2 in, in certain ways. Acts chapter 1 and 2, boldness is actually there. But no, not word for word. I want you to get more specific. The kingdom of God. See there, Acts chapter 28, verse 31, it says, He now proclaims the kingdom of God, and he teaches about Jesus. Correct? Does everybody see that? Paul ends, uh, Luke ends the, the book of Acts with him, with Paul teaching about the kingdom of God and Jesus. How does the book of Acts begin? Here, let's just go to verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up in heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So is discipleship an end or is it a means? It's a means. What is it the means to the, uh, means to the end is what? What is the end? The kingdom of God. So will we all be doing discipleship forever? No, the kingdom of God will replace what we now call discipleship. Because the Bible says then everyone will know our God. Everyone will see him. They'll be known as they are known. They'll know him as they are known, rather. And so discipleship is a means to an end. Now, if you want to take it in a... Um, more general sense, will we always be learning? I do believe so. But if you want to talk about uh, souls being saved and disciples being made, that being the kind of discipleship that Jesus talked about in the Great Commission and so forth, oh, we won't be doing that anymore in the kingdom of God. 
The thousand-year millennial reign is a shifting of the kingdom of God to the earth. I still believe people will be getting the chance to get saved there. But I'm talking about when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness in the end of uh, the judgment time when the thousand-year reign is over and now the new heavens and the new earth, God the Father and the Son are there with the river coming from the throne and the trees are on the side of the river and, and bring healing to the nations and there we'll be forever with our God. That is the fullness of the kingdom, the Garden of Eden restored. Will discipleship continue, souls being saved, disciples being made? No. It was for a time and for a season. And so we see that the book of Acts begins and ends the exact same way. So what's the meat in the middle? It's the boom shakalaka power of God. Literally, it's the boom shakalaka power of God because he says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, it's not for you to know the dates and times that I've uh, set by uh, my authority. It says right here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where is now Rome in that circle? If you start real small here and you go uh, Jerusalem, and then you go out here to Judea, and then you go to Samaria, where is Rome? Ends of the earth. Praise God. And then you talked about boldness and power. That's how they begin to preach the gospel as the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In Acts chapter 2, they begin to stand up. And Peter, who was once afraid and known as a coward uh, because of him running away, he now stands up and raises his voices and he begins to preach to them boldly the things of God. So the book of Acts starts with the kingdom and it ends with the kingdom. What's everything in the middle? The power of God, the Holy Spirit. And are we still... In, in a sense, the book of Acts, absolutely. We are still bringing forth the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so I pray that this sermon series has blessed you. You have gone through every chapter of this book. You have seen what God did through his early disciples, and I pray that it inspires you. This is the timeline. Now Paul here in Rome will write the rest of his letters. Those are called the jailhouse letters. There is a question to whether or not he took a fourth missionary journey and I combined all of them here together, and uh, the first three missionary journeys and then his journey to Rome. And then there's an idea that he possibly took a fourth missionary journey and went back over to Crete and traveled around, and then he was arrested again. We're not sure on that because the Bible doesn't record it and history's not clear, but you can read that right here, a possible fourth missionary journey. Here is how I think I would want to end the book of Acts, which primarily focuses on the life of Paul. We know he eventually gets beheaded under Nero. Timothy, his famous disciple, who had two books named after him and became the pastor of his largest church, which was Ephesians, Ephesus, was killed as an old man preaching at a, at a parade, drugged through the city and beat to death. The disciples, like Peter, were, were crucified upside down. Philip was speared to death as he went and became a missionary to India. We see how many of them, Almost all of them died in those early years for their faith, and even still many die today for Jesus. And here is what I would like to summarize Paul's life by and the life of the disciples who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians, 4, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I pray that I won't be ashamed, 
but that I'll have courage. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at myself in the mirror before Sundays getting ready, getting pumped up, or just on ordinary days, just going about my life thinking internally, that I say this to myself, may not, if, if, if I was to go in a time machine, 41 years old, and meet the 18-year-old Joe who got saved, may not my 18-year-old self be ashamed of my 41-year-old self. Because if, I, if my 18-year-old self saw a 41-year-old man cheat on his wife, I would be so ashamed of that person. I would say this person has dishonored their family. And if a 21-year-old Bible college, that's how old I was when I graduated, started my first church at 22, met a 41-year-old self, uh, my 41-year-old self, and I said, well, I don't witness anymore, and I don't go preach the gospel anymore. And and now look at this great church that I've built with all of these people I never offend because I never teach the things of God. Oh, that 22-year-old self would be so ashamed of the 41-year-old Joe. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want Jesus to look at me and say, why did you do this? Why did you turn from me? I want to be like Paul and finish my race to the end. Now, how do we do that? We do that in grace and love. We don't do that out of legalism. I'm having the most fun of my entire life. When you look at me, like seriously, if you saw me, like, I, you know, like I'm just like a normal person, when I go get the mail, would you look at me and think of me as a stressed out dude? I know I got some gray hair, but other than that, would you look at me as a stressed out guy? Would you guys come over and visit me at my house? When you see me posting pictures with my kids, I feel that life for me is like a vacation. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have to work hard and there aren't deadlines and things like that, but spiritually, I'm at rest. God has given me his best. I am so blessed. Amen. I am blessed, but I just want to tell you, I'm willing to die for Jesus. I'm willing to give this all up at any moment if he told me to go be a missionary in North Korea and be caught preaching the gospel and go to a Korean uh, concentration camp. I would do it. And as the Moravian missionaries gave themselves to the slave trade so that they could witness to the people being bought and sold because the slave traders wouldn't let them preach to the Africans. And they said, what if we sell ourselves to you? Will you let us go on these journeys in slave ships? And that's where the Moravian missionaries came up with that saying, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. So they went on these slave ships never to be seen again to go preach the gospel. That was their slogan as they would go. They were willing to give it all up for Jesus. I'm still willing to give it all up for Jesus. When I step out and preach at Bodequa Fest or when we get this gospel truck and we go to the west side and the south side, I don't want to fear God. And, and as I've been invited to preach places like Pakistan, I, I, I faced that fear and I said, I'm willing to go, but they turned my visa down. And even to this day with my wife and kids, I don't want to let the blessings, as I've told you guys before, the blessings that God has given me hinder me now before for laying down my life for Jesus. So I want to encourage you, finish your race strong, whether by life or by death, whether by finals or by summer break. Love Jesus. Love Jesus in your finals. Love Jesus in your summer break. Whether your first year or your third year, love Jesus. Whether you get paid a lot or you don't get paid anything, love Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for this awesome chapel today that concludes our SUM school year of 2017-2018. Lord, we have faithfully gone through the, the book you gave us to teach us about your disciples, the book of Acts. Lord, we pray that it will remain in our heart, that we'll go back and look over it, and that even for years to come, even myself, that we'll be growing more and more in the things that we've learned, and that we'll build upon the foundation of our leaders of the past. These are our people, God. I relate to them more than I do the people of Italy, because I look at their story so closely related to my story. I relate to them more than even I do in America.
American or being an American, Lord. I relate to these Christians as my identity more than any cultural community I've ever been a part of, Lord. And Lord, let us continue on. They didn't want it just to be a closed book. They wanted us to continue on, as some have even named their ministries, Acts 29, a continuation of the book of Acts. Lord, that is their dream. The cloud of witnesses. Hebrews says, you gave us Hebrews chapter 12, says, therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And let us look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and run with patience the race set before us, who for the joy set before before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God, let us be like them. Let us run our race like they did. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's give it up for the Lord. Come on.